So, I have come to the conclusion that every time Chris asks me to preach, he's messing with me. In some way, shape, or form, this dude is definitely messing with me, and I got proof. Because the first time he asked me to preach, he gave me Mark 13, which, if you don't remember, is basically about the sky falling down. Like, not figuratively, like literally. Like, Jesus talks about the sun is going to go dark at midday, the moon's not going to give its light, the stars are going to fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies are going to be shaken, and the world as we know it is going to come to a violent and catastrophic end. So that was the first time. Well done there, Chris. The second time he asked me to preach, um, I was quite busy. And so I decided I would try to get out of it by saying, I'll do it, only if I can preach on sex and pornography. This started a game of chicken, which I lost. Chris did not blink, and so I had to preach on sex and pornography. Well done indeed, Chris. Well done indeed. And then this time he said, hey, I'd like you to preach on Palm Sunday. <clears throat> and I thought, Palm Sunday? You mean like Jesus riding a donkey, everybody waving palm branches and singing Hosanna? I mean, that sounds pretty straightforward compared to the last two times. What's the catch? And then he said, well, I would like you to draw in John 9. And I thought, John 9? That has nothing to do with Palm Sunday. That doesn't happen on Palm Sunday. That doesn't happen like anywhere near Palm Sunday. If you read the Gospel of John, it happens like a few months before Palm Sunday. So I thought every time, every time this dude asked me to preach, he's throwing me a curveball. But, you know, then I started to remember that in the early church. They used to say that when you read scripture, the Holy Spirit was a curveball thrower. Okay, they didn't call him that. Uh, they didn't have baseball. But they did talk about what it was like to read scripture uh, when the Holy Spirit guided you. They said, you know, you'd be going through scripture and you thought you understood what was going on and then suddenly the Holy Spirit would put a stumbling block in your way. He'd trip you up. And then they asked, well, why would the Holy Spirit do this? Well, the idea was the Holy Spirit would do this because if you thought as you read scripture, you finally figured God out. You finally thought you were able to predict what he was going to say or what he was going to do. Well, then you weren't really dealing with the real God you're probably dealing with just some figment of your imagination. And so the Holy Spirit will put that stumbling block in your way to trip you up, to knock you off your game, to try to force you to seek the true God more deeply. So if you ever come across a passage of, a passage of Scripture where you think, okay, this seems pretty straightforward, ask the Holy Spirit to knock you off your game so that you can encounter the true and living God once again. So perhaps, unbeknownst to himself, or maybe quite beknownst to himself, Chris was in some way playing the role of the Holy Spirit to me. Because, like I said, when I encountered Palm Sunday, I thought, this seems pretty straightforward. But if there's any passage that's going to make you rethink whether you, in fact, understand Jesus, it's probably John 9. I mean, John 9, it starts off straightforwardly enough. Jesus heals this man who's born blind. But then we're told Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath. And then this starts a whole big controversy because the question is, well, you're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath. Does Jesus uh, healing the man count as doing work? So the people start asking, well, can Jesus then be from God? And so the Pharisees jump in, and they ultimately seem to side with saying, no, he can't be. 
I know what you're thinking. You know, the Pharisees, you might say, it's easy to dismiss them because aren't they the ones who are always getting into fights with Jesus? They're like the uptight ones, right? They're the ones who are always self-righteous. They're the legalistic ones. But even in the New Testament, they're the ones who read the scriptures really closely. They wanted to live it out, and they wanted to help other people figure out how to live it out. So if anybody was supposed to be able to evaluate what God was or was not doing in Jesus, it was probably the Pharisees. But then Jesus has this really unsettling conversation with them. He says, you know, you think that you can render a judgment about me. But in fact, I'm the one who's come into this world to exercise judgment. You see, I've come into this world so that those who don't see might see, and so that those who do see might become blind. And then the Pharisees say, surely you're not saying we're blind, are you? And Jesus says, well, if you were blind, you wouldn't have any sin. But now that you claim you can see, your sin remains. And that should send a chill up all our spines. Because we have to ask ourselves the questions, are we ever like that? Do we ever do that? Are we ever like those who think we understand Jesus finally, when in fact we're just looking at him through our spiritual blindness? So that will force you to reconsider any passage where you read about Jesus. And Palm Sunday, well, that's a prime candidate for rereading in light of this passage. Because, you know, it seems like the relatively happy part of Passion Week, doesn't it? Jesus got a donkey. Everybody's waving palm branches. They're singing Hosanna. They're putting their cloaks on the floor. And then this is one of the most participatory Sundays we have. I mean, we wave our own palm branches. We sing Hosanna. We match their song with our song. But with words like John 9 ringing in your ear, you have to think, do we really understand what Jesus is up to? And should we be so happy? I mean, we think we should be because our king is coming to us. But then if we think about that more closely, you might think, well, wait a minute. Every king comes with a kingdom. And every kingdom comes with an order. And throughout history, people have known that when a new king arises, when a new ruler is installed, when a new president is inaugurated, this can be cause for like a lot of distress and a lot of fear. Because people know that the order they've been familiar with up until now may not continue. And the people of Jerusalem seem to intuitively grasp this about Jesus. Because it says that as he rode into Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up asking, who is this? And that word for stirred up, it sometimes gets translated as excited, but that is not what that word means. It's actually for, for the word that they use for when an earthquake happens. These people were shaken. They were shaken to their core. They were shaken to their foundations because they sensed that the order that Jesus was bringing was going to disrupt the order of their lives. And they were right. Because if there's anything we know about Jesus, he's king of kings and he's lord of lords. And yes, he'll have that conversation with Pilate later this week where Pilate will say, are you a king? And he'll say, my kingdom's not of this world. But that doesn't mean his kingdom has no implications for this world. It just means that his kingdom doesn't come from any of the kingdoms of this world. That his order doesn't simply replicate any of the orders we're familiar with. 
Instead, his kingdom is above all kingdoms. His order is above all orders, and ultimately, no order that's opposed to his will be able to stand. And that should be really sobering for us. Because the truth is, all of us, each of us, is somehow wrapped up in the kingdoms of this world, in orders and ways and patterns of existing in this world that are somehow opposed to the kingdom that Jesus seeks to establish. That might sound dramatic. Unfortunately, it's not. Because think about it this way. Before any of us is born, the kingdoms of this world, the orders of this world, the ways and patterns of existing in this world, they're already established. They're just waiting to receive us. So that when we're born, they just get to work on us. And before we get, have any critical faculties to ask like whether we should be formed by those ways of being in the world, we simply are. So that the assumptions of people around us become our assumptions. Their reasons for pride become our reasons for pride. The prejudices of our subculture become our prejudices. Their reasons for fear and hope become our reasons for fear and hope. Their visions of security and success become our visions of security and success. And the problem is that so much of this has just nothing to do with God. Often it's opposed to God. Instead, it has to do with money or prestige or comfort. And then this problematic formation, well, it doesn't magically disappear when we become Christians. When we become Christians, the Lord simply invites us to a work of ongoing healing so that he can undo all that problematic formation we've received in the world and so that he can reshape us and reform us for his kingdom. But this work is really hard because this formation goes down to our foundations. And we can be around stuff we call Christian for a long time without ever really being reshaped for his kingdom. I mean, if you doubt that, think about the disciples. They're really good examples for this sort of stuff. They are really thick. Look at what happens right before Palm Sunday. They get in a fight about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. James and John approach Jesus and they say, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, we would like two seats, preferably the ones at your right and your left hand. And then the other disciples, they hear about this, and they get jealous. They get angry, probably angry because they didn't think of asking that question first. And so Jesus has to sit them all down. He says, no, 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 no. Look, you're thinking about this in entirely the wrong way. You're thinking about this the way the world thinks about this. You know, it's those in the world who use their power to lord it over others. It's those in the world who don't know God who use their power to dominate others. It's those in the world who don't know God who use their power to serve themselves. But that's not how it's going to be with you. You want to be first in my kingdom? You're going to be last. You want to be great in my kingdom? You're going to be the servant of all. Because look at me, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life to set many free. Now, sometimes when people hear these sorts of words from Jesus, they get concerned, and rightly so, because they know that sometimes these words have been used to tell people who are already subject to injustice, who are already subject to abuse, well, just keep being a servant, and that way you'll be great in the kingdom of heaven. That would be a serious misapplication of Jesus' words. 
Jesus isn't saying there isn't space to directly and vigorously challenge injustice. Rather, what he's trying to do is he's trying to get the disciples to recognize the way that they themselves are wrapped up in the injustice of the world. He's challenging the disciples to recognize the way that they replicate the unjust ways of being in the world. He's challenging them saying, look, as long as you think and act like the rest of the world where everybody's out for themselves, you've not been reshaped for my kingdom. And that challenge is no less real and no less pointed for us than it was for them. Jesus is inviting us to self-examination. He's inviting us to ask ourselves, how are we wrapped up in the injustice of the world? How are we replicating the ungodly ways of being in the world? How do we simply act and think like the world where we're out for ourselves, using our power in whatever form we have it in order to advance ourselves? But Jesus isn't simply offering us a question to ponder because he knows that if we're just stuck inside our own heads, well, we can give ourselves so many ways out. We can rationalize so much of what we do. We can justify so much of what we do. We can engage in the deepest sort of self-deception. Jesus doesn't simply give us a mental exercise. Rather, he gives us a solution that involves our whole person. He gives us an embodied solution. He gives us a relational solution. He says, the path to your healing lies in entering into relationship of service toward others. But Jesus knows that we are super sinful, so we can even turn serving others into a way of serving ourselves. So he'll warn his disciples, look, don't simply seek to serve the mighty, the rich, and the powerful. Because if you seek to serve just the rich, well, they could pay you back. If you seek to serve only the mighty and the powerful, well, they're good for your networking opportunities. They could advance your career. If you hang out with only the cool people, well, they can just increase your prestige. Rather, Jesus directs us where the world has turned its eyes away. He directs our eyes in Matthew 25 to those he calls the least of these, those he calls the poor, the hungry, the unclothed, the sick, the imprisoned, the stranger. And that word for stranger is that word for the person who ain't from around here, that person who doesn't have connections to survive here, the person who doesn't have the resources they need to get by here. In our day, I can't help but think of refugees and immigrants. Jesus sends us to the place that the world would encourage us to harden our hearts. Often you might hear people in the world say, Jesus, why are you sending us to the poor? I mean, there's enough out there for them already. They don't, don't encourage them. Or the imprisoned, Jesus, don't you know that some people are there because they did bad things? It can be dangerous to go there. Or Jesus, the immigrant, don't you know some of them are here illegally? They can be dangerous. And even if they're not dangerous, well, they can be a drain on the rest of us. But Jesus puts all that chatter to silence. He says, before you ask how they're part of the problem, ask how you're part of the problem. People end up in those situations for an array of mysterious reasons that you'll never fully understand. It's dangerous to judge them. So Jesus isn't calling us to judge. He's calling us to serve. 
The question is simply whether we'll respond to that call to serve or whether, like the rest of the world, we'll harden our hearts because, well, we just can't be bothered. We have our own lives to secure. We have our own kingdoms to build. But Jesus sends us to the least of these because he knows that when we're there, we start to see the way that they're at the mercy of our collective selfishness, the way that they're at the mercy of our collective refusal to look beyond ourselves. The Lord sends us there so that he can hold up a mirror to us and show us the way that we are wrapped up in the world's selfishness, to show us the way that we are wrapped up in that way of the world where we simply serve ourselves. The Lord sends us there to break our self-deception. That's why when we go there, it's not primarily we who are saving them. In a much profounder sense, it's they who are saving us. Mother Teresa had a beautiful quote about this. She would say, it's only in heaven that we're going to see how much we owe to the poor for helping us to love God better because of them. That's why the voices in the world that would encourage us to coarsen ourselves, to harden our hearts to the poor, to the imprisoned, to the immigrant, those are the voices that would prevent us from knowing God. This goes for all in the kingdom, rich and poor alike. If the cause of the poor, the cause of the imprisoned, the cause of the immigrant is not our cause, the cause of Christ is not our cause. Oh, we have a cause, but it rises no higher than ourselves. We seek a kingdom, but it's not Christ's. It's our own. And we may sit enthroned in that kingdom one day. <clears throat> we may be first in that kingdom. We may be number one, but the reason we'll be number one is because we'll be alone. Because ultimately in that kingdom, there's no room for anybody else except ourselves. And sometimes you can see how that trajectory, that way of living does lead to profound loneliness. If you ever have the opportunity to talk to somebody who's quite elderly and has this profound sense of regret and loneliness because they realize that they made their lives about themselves. Or sometimes that anxiety hits somebody in the course of a midlife crisis because they feel so desolate and isolated because their lives have been about themselves. And the kingdom of Jesus is not a kingdom of isolation. It's not a kingdom of loneliness. Rather, it's a kingdom of true community. There may not be much money to be made there. There may not be much prestige. There may not be much opportunity for advancement. But it is the kingdom of community. Because there, people don't seek their own interests. Instead, they seek to serve each other. And as they seek to serve each other, they are freed more and more from the lies of the world that would isolate them that would try to get them to build their own kingdoms instead of participate in the kingdom of Jesus. And as they're freed, they're able to see the Lord more clearly. They're able to love him more deeply. So today, we have these two passages converging on us. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem and the whole city was shaken up because of him, let's ask the Lord for the grace that we might be similarly shaken 
so that nothing that's in us that is not of his kingdom will remain. And as he touched the blind man and healed him and challenged the Pharisees in their blindness, let's ask the Lord that he might heal us and that he might challenge us so that the world might not darken our eyes and we might see him. Let's pray. Lord, the work of healing that needs to be done in us is too great for us to accomplish. Our hands cannot achieve it. Our thoughts cannot think it. We cannot even see where we are supposed to go, Lord. We pray that you would heal us, that you would guide us, we step on this path trembling. We do come knowing that you've brought us here, that you are ahead of us, and that you're always with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.